Good afternoon. It is 101 p.m. here on the west coast of the United States, December the 8th. And uh, I don't want to take more of your time because we want to jump into our conversation with Dr. Clay Jones. As always, I will go through a quick introduction. We'll get some tips on life and experience, and then we'll jump into our specific topic. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Arthur. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be with you. Appreciate it. I want to go quickly through your, um, your education, and then we'll talk a little bit about your education and then your experience in, uh, in, in the field of doing apologetics. So you have a BA in philosophy. You started off as a philosopher, uh, which is always a great thing. And then you have a master's of divinity and a doctor of ministry. The unique thing I saw in your experience is that you haven't only been an academician. Uh, you've done radio. Uh, you've debated folks. You've worked in churches as well, which is amazing because academicians sometimes tend to be in their own realm of existence. And then folks in ministry tend to be in their own realm of existence. You've brought that together. So usually I ask our guests to give us some wisdom uh, about how to navigate uh, education specifically, but it has it's, it's more of a life lesson. Some folks are those type where they just go from 18 to 28 and they'll get a PhD by that time. And then some folks are like, you know, I had three teenage kids and then I went back for a doctorate when I was 50. So tell us about your experience and wisdom you can impart to some folks that might be on the beginning stages of that or if they want to get into that or if not. Well, I do definitely have some suggestions here to say the least. Uh, and, and it is this. If you're wondering exactly what you should do ministry-wise, fast and pray. And when I say fast, I mean literally no calories. You can drink water. You need to drink water. If you go too long, you'll die. Uh, so drink water. but And don't tell anybody. Jesus said that if you fast in secret, and he says the same thing about prayer. If you pray in secret, he says your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And I think. We need to cash in. I mean, cha-ching. Cash in on having the Father reward you. And I certainly did as I was at a place in my life where I thought, where am I supposed to go? What am I going to do? Uh, you know, how does God want to use me? I spent time in fat prayer and fasting. And, and don't tell anybody. I'm not saying don't tell your spouse. My wife and I, many years ago, it was kind of a we realized how stupid it was because I'd say to my wife, uh, um, what do you want for dinner? And she says, oh, I don't want anything for dinner. You don't want anything for dinner. What do you mean you don't want anything for dinner? Well, I said, are you not hungry? She says, no, I'm hungry. Well, what's going on? <laughs> well, anyway, turns out she was fasting anyway. And uh, so we realized that that's dumb. You know, <laughs> you can't hide it from your spouse. Okay. But basically don't tell anybody. In other words, you're not trying to get a reward for fasting here on earth. And it says your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. If uh, now Elon Musk came up to one of us and said, you know, uh, if you go for a day or two without eating anything, no calories, that's the way I fast anyway, no calorie fast. Uh, if people have, if you know, if you've got diabetic, if you're diabetic or other things, you may need to, you know, modify that and have something else. But anyway, 
<clears throat> if he came to you and he said, uh, if you go for a day or two without eating and you don't tell anybody, I will reward you. I think an awful lot of people would do that immediately because they'd go, wow, richest man in the world. It's good said he'd reward me mm. if I did this. Well, the creator of the universe says, I will reward you. And so I really encourage you, if you're thinking, what, where should I go? What should I do? What education should I get? Fast and pray. So there's my, there's my uh, suggestion for today. Awesome. Well, that's, that's good perspective, right? Like if, if God owns everything and he tells you, hey, I'll, I'll reward you, why, why not take that opportunity? To, as and I day? have felt very rewarded by him, frankly. And I'm not going to go through what I think the rewards are, but I have just felt like doors have opened concepts have become clear to me and and things like that and so it's yeah it's been awesome that's interesting so con you, you spoke about concepts becoming uh, clear so so god's ability since he's all-knowing um god's ability to help us through um thinking through some difficult subjects whether related to the bible or not well when i was writing my book which i was writing i started writing it in 1994 1994, I started fasting pretty regularly over various ideas and concepts in it. And I felt like the Lord, frankly, gave me, you know, answers to some of the things that I was searching out. So yeah, he knows everything. And, and, but he wants us to humble ourselves and say, Hey, I need your help. Help me here. So, uh, so a lot of fasting was in behind my book, Why Does God Allow Evil? Amen. So you got two books around you and we have both of those in the in the description box for folks to go and purchase. Tell us a little bit about those books. It seems like... Uh... Well, the first one, Why Why Does God Allow Evil? Like I said, I started writing it in 93, 90, probably 94. And uh, I thought it would be published right away. Uh, and I had a friend that was going to help me pub publish. And he thought it'd be published right away. It took 23 years. Uh, now, and I, I was terribly frustrated by that. Uh, wow. But... But I, that 23 years was such a lesson to me because I needed that 23 years. I taught the course, Why Does God Allow Evil? at Talbot School of Theology from starting in about 2005. Uh, and I taught it, well, in fact, I'm going to be teaching it again uh, this next semester at Talbot. Uh, so I've been teaching it for years. That was very helpful to have students come back at me and say, well, what about this? And what about that? And you didn't, you know, explain this and explain that. Well, that was, I thank God for that. And I would not, my book would not be anywhere near uh, what, what it should be, what it would, what it is anyway, without having that interaction and having 23 years to study and pray and seek the Lord. And so uh, the other book that I have behind me is Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. And the premise of that book is that simply everybody on earth has got a symbolic immortality project. And by that, I mean, you've got some way that you think you're going to live on beyond your death. Uh, and most people think, for instance, I'm going to live on through having children. You're not. And I talk about this in my book. Uh, after 20 generations, there's not enough of your DNA in a, a in your offspring 20 generations later to feed a mosquito, but it's worse than that. There might not be any of your DNA because genes are, you know, dominant and regressive and you might not have any DNA, but then it now I'll make it worse. So I've talked to my, my students in my classes and I'll say, how many of you know the first names of all four of your great, great grandparents? 
in all the classes that I've asked, uh, I think maybe three or four students have said, I know the first names of my great, great grandparents. In other words, hardly anybody knows. And the, but the, here's the kicker. Then I followed up with this question. I say, how many of you care? No one cares. I've not had one person go, hey, I really care. I wish I knew the first names of my great, great grandparents. They don't care. One young woman said to me, well, in front of the class said, well, I'm glad they got together. <laughs> and, and I get that, of course, or she wouldn't be here. But other than that, people don't care. In other words, uh, people, but that's the biggest, for instance, symbolic immortality project. People are going to write a book. Uh, they're going to do something famous. They're going to be a YouTube influencer or something. But none of that's going to matter. The only thing that matters is that you're living for Jesus. And when you get to the kingdom of heaven, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But this book, anyway, Immortal goes through literal immortality projects and how people are literally trying to live forever. And then symbolic immortality projects. And then what I call atheist mortality mitigation projects. Namely, atheists are going, oh, death's not that big a deal anyway. Oh, yes, it is. And when they really get close to death, they find out it is. So anyway, and then I end up talking about heaven and the fact that we're going to be glorified and stuff. So anyway, there's the, nice. that's, that's, the that's a thing. subject that uh, I would like to uh, touch upon maybe, uh, maybe some other time because there's a lot of secular immortality projects out there, like people getting buried with trees and turning into... Oh, like, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to live on through, you know, mushrooms are going to grow out of my body. Yeah. And uh, yeah, good luck with that. So they blame I mean, religious even people. If they, even if they do... Uh, you're still dead. Your consciousness isn't going on. So anyway, you're not. Anyway, yeah. it's not going to happen for you. Correct. Okay, so let's let's talk about a a subject that for me I grew up hearing all the time, and it was beyond um, a um, intellectual kind of academic thing. A lot of folks grow up they hear about genocides. There are these four removed things that happened to people long ago, right? So maybe some people learn about the genocides uh, in the sense of the Holocaust, uh, and it's in, it's in a history classroom. So I grew up as an Armenian. Um, one of the first things I uh, have a memory of uh, actually being uh, born and raised in Armenia was as a young child going to the genocide uh, memorial and museum uh, on April 24th in Armenia with my parents. As a little kid, you know, four or five years old, I remember holding my dad's hand and just going on this large march. And it was like, what are we doing? It's like, well, you know, our people, there was genocide committed against our people. So it becomes a part of your upbringing. It does sure. all sorts of weird stuff to you in regards to emotions and hate and and all sorts of stuff that Jesus has covered and, and <laughs> forgives us for uh, and heals us for. But that's a lot different than people hearing about it in, in a classroom setting, you can say, or, or reading about it in books. You've done some research in the area of genocide. I want to specifically speak about that, and then we'll transition into the problem of evil and then some, some biblical uh, stuff that people accuse God of committing genocide. But uh, let's talk about, first and foremost, what would be a general maybe definition of a genocide? Well, uh, I'm not going to get into the UN's full-blown, you know, paragraph-long uh, definition, but basically, 
genocide is where you're killing or destroying a race of people, basically, or a religion or something about a group of people that you don't like. And so you decide to destroy that group of people. Uh, it, in you know, much of Eastern Europe, of course, it was anybody who was a capitalist or had any kind of love for capitalism uh, or, you know, what they call in Russia, they call the bourgeoisie, mm. uh, you know, shop owners and stuff, people that own stuff. Uh, were killed. But anyway, just, it, just in general, it's the annihilation of a race or a religion or something else you don't like. Anybody that stands in the way of your ambitious goals, like I say, and that was the case with communism, you're getting in the way. Uh, now, of course, a lot of communists also, they killed Christians because Christians did get in the way of communism because, you know, I, they're not going to simply go well whatever whatever the state wants i mean you can't be a christian and say yeah but i submit to the state in everything you can't do that so anyway that just that's a so, good okay so it's it's, it's you, we can say it's the, it's the mass murder of folks based on ideology religion skin Something. color and like any yes, any sir. one sort of uh thing that identifies it um what, what have been some uh, maybe genocides that you've studied and looked at that are not as popular that people? Well, talk boy, about? that's a I've I've looked at I've spent many, many, many years now studying genocide. Uh, and I certainly have studied the Armenian genocide. Uh, and, you know, I mean, of course, I, I often, in fact, don't even talk that much about the Holocaust. Because it's the one genocide that everybody is so terribly, I mean, terribly familiar with, and they should be. One of the right. things about the Holocaust was, is we learned a lot because the Germans were careful record keepers. And so we know an awful lot about what was going on during the Holocaust. But uh, uh, there's uh, plenty of other, uh, for instance, the rape of Nanking. In 1937, Japan invaded Nanking, China, and about 300,000 people were raped, tortured, or murdered in Nanking, China. A lot of people are not familiar with the rape of Nanking. They're like, now what? Uh, of course, you know, I mean, I mean, there's genocides that have gone on in Croatia, and there's genocides that have gone on. And, and uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the communists, I mean, killed, well, a, a, a very low number. Well, let me put it this way. For instance, in the Soviet Union, uh, somewhere between 20 and 69 million people were killed because they didn't support uh, the Soviet Union's goals, Marxism in one way or another, somewhere between 20 and 69 million. R.J. Rummel, who's a researcher, he goes with the number 69 million. I think that may be a little high. I, might, I think 20 million might be a little low. Uh, but somewhere in there, an awful lot of people uh, were were murdered uh, under Mao Zedong, uh, about 30 million. And the numbers I'm giving, well, the low end numbers are conservative, about 30 million people. Uh, the Khmer Rouge uh, were in Cambodia, where out of a total population of only 5 million people, that's the total population, somewhere between uh, two and a half to three million people were killed. Uh, maybe closer to 2 million, were killed out of a total population of only 5 million. Uh, Rwanda in 1994, <clears throat> the, Tutsis or the Hutus decided to kill the Tutsis 
And out of a total population of 8 million people, uh, 800,000 people were killed largely by machete in 100 days. Uh, in fact, for the most for the most amount of people killed in the shortest period of time, that would go to Rwanda. Uh, but in fact, so uh, and we that they decimated literally decimate decimate means to kill one out of ten. They decimated the country of Rwanda, uh, killing like I say eight hundred thousand people out of a total of population of only eight million in one hundred days. Uh, and so. <clears throat> You know, there's lots of other genocides. I mean, Mexico killing its indigenous people. Uh, you know, I mean, things that went on throughout Africa. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of genocides that have occurred throughout Africa. And, uh, you know, Muslims obviously have gone out of their way on occasion to kill Christians and and, and on and on and on it goes. So anyway, yeah, I've, I still read genocide books and, and uh, uh, it tells us an awful lot about humankind. And so anyway, it's valuable knowledge and it's knowledge that I don't think most people want to look at. They want to push. No, 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 no. I don't want to right. even think about that. Uh, and that's wrong uh, because really we need to understand what happened in these situations. Yeah. So what, what would uh, have there been common threads that I mean, you just mentioned Africa, Europe, the Middle East, Asia. Uh, this is not uh, contrary to popular modern progressive ideology. It's not an issue of the white man. Um, and so this is this is a global human issue. We've seen this in all cultures, everywhere, regardless of whatever um, their kind of background is. Everywhere, regardless, yes. So what it, have there been common <clears throat> threads that run through kind of the thinking? Because it, it's just so weird to sit there and say... Hey, you know, like in in a matter of 15 years or something like that, a certain culture flips on a certain portion of its population or a neighboring population and then tries to wipe them off the face of the planet. There needs to be some kind of a justification internally that happens there. What are these common threads that uh, you might have seen? Well, the biggest common thread that I let, by the way, before I go on, let me just mention uh, the United States. In, here in the United States, since 1973, we've suctioned, scraped, or scalded to mm. death over 60 million babies. Now they've added on this chemical abortion, you know, the, where you take a pill. But we have suctioned, scraped, scalded, or chemically aborted well over 60 million babies here in the United States. I had a friend come up to me one day and she says, you know, Clay, those other examples... Germany, Japan, whatever, China, the Khmer Rouge, whatever. <clears throat> Those make your point. But she says, don't use it. Don't use abortion as an example, because a lot of people don't think it's wrong and it weakens your point. And I thought, well, that's my point. <laughs> uh, my point is, is that our killing, we have a way to justify other people's killing. That really upsets us. But and honestly, it's projection. But here's the, the number one thing that was surprising to me, Arthur, about all of this. Uh, and, and just mind boggling. And I go through many examples of, of, my, of this in, in my book, Quiet as God Allow Evil. Uh, every genocide researcher I know to a person, there are no exceptions, not even one, agrees that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. Uh, all of them do. Um, and I don't, like I say, I don't know any exceptions to this at all. All of them do this. Um, 
for instance, you know, there's a couple of guys uh, that I, I really like. Um, uh, they put it when it came to the, the Holocaust, they said, George Cran, historian George Cran and psychologist Leon Rapoport said, where did this wolf trod? Oh, excuse me, start over. Uh, if one stays at the Holocaust long enough, I was started to quote Solzhenitsyn. If someone start, stays at the Holocaust long enough, then sooner or later, the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself. One knows finally whether one will do it or be done to. If it could happen on such a massive scale elsewhere, it can happen anywhere. It's all within the realm of human possibility. And so when it comes to this, uh, I, ever, let me just say that again. Every genocide researcher I know to a person agrees that it's the average ordinary member of a population that commits genocide. All of them do. And it, uh, I document this very carefully in my book. And so uh, I really just encourage you to take a look at this. But And it goes on. Um, uh, I'll give you one. Here's another one. Sociologist Harold Welzer put it this way. We're left then with the most discomforting of all realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand, to absorb. As we look to the perpetrators of genocide and mass killing, we no longer need to ask who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. When Eichmann was the administrator of Auschwitz, I'll give you one more. I can give you lots more, but I'll give you one more. Eichmann was the administrator of Auschwitz, and uh, when he was he fled to Argentina. He was captured by the Israelis. They they took him to Jerusalem to stand trial. A woman named Hannah Arndt uh, went and watched the trial, and she wrote a book entitled Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. Now listen to her conclusion. She says the main trouble with Eichmann was, the, was that there were so many like him neither perverted nor sadistic that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. And so, well, I'll give you just one more because I like this one a lot. Um, there's a book, I signed this to my classes for years. It's entitled Ordinary Men. If you wanna get a book that's gonna free you from the notion that, that ordinary people don't kill, get Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men, subtitled Police Reserve Battalion, Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. Browning concluded this, I could have been the killer or the evader, both were human. And so uh, I, I think when you look at this, you have to go, wait a minute, there's something really wrong here with humankind. And uh, anyway, and, it is, and what's wrong is that every genocide researcher I know agrees that this is what normal people do. But uh, shall I pause there for a minute? Because otherwise, I'll go into victims. <coughs> yeah, so a couple I, I, of... I, uh, there's a just so I'll give a couple of examples. So in Germany, th this is uh, commonly known. There were these propaganda cartoons and stuff like that that would portray Jewish people as rats. Right. Um, and we've seen this in other settings. As a matter of fact, there is uh, there are organizations kind of dedicated to globally currently. Uh, to, to pay attention to l lingo of this sort that are uh, coming about from certain populations. So Armenia recently had a war with Azerbaijan, and one of these human rights watches actually brought to the surface a very... Uh, they, they, were, they were essentially fighting over this, uh, this territory called Artsakh by Armenians, Nagorno-Karabakh by um, kind of the Turkified, Russified name for it. 
uh, regionally called that. But one of the cartoonish things that came out was a map of Azerbaijan and that region, Artsakh, and there was um, uh, there was an individual that was spraying uh, chemicals, right, like in the hazmat suits, uh, spraying these chemicals, and all these cockroaches were running out, and that was supposed to be the Armenians. And, right. and they flagged this as, hey, this is genocidal language, because now it's portraying a population of people as cockroaches. Right. Um, so w- what are those kind of justifications? that come Well, you always come up with a justification, regardless of how thinly veiled it is. Mm. There's always a justification. Uh, obviously, in, during the Holocaust, Jews were subhuman. Uh, you know, w- with communism and a lot of the genocides that occurred in communism, it was just you're standing in the way of utopia, right? I mean, that utopia is coming and you've got these uh, people that are standing in the way. We're all going to have utopia. John Lennon's song, you know, stupidly saying, you know, uh, you know, imagine all the people living together in harmony, in harmony, no, no, no heaven above us, no hell below. It's just all going to be wonderful that we can all just live in harmony. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's just simply isn't true. But of course, everybody, you know, I mean, uh, when it comes to the United States and abortion, well, they're not, re- they're not actually human persons. They're just clumps of tissue. I mean, in some way, you know, we're always going to come with something. We're going to find something. Or there's a moral thing, right? Like, so <clears throat> the, the one you gave about communism, it's you're standing in the way, so therefore you're evil. Right. Because we want right. to have something so good and, and, and positive for humanity, and you're, you're the problem here. You, you must be an evil person. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and on it goes. That's exactly correct. And so, you know, I mean, uh, they, you know, with the, the, Tut- the Hutus killing the Tutsis, they just considered them to be evil and they thought they were oppressive. And, and uh, you know, I mean, but you always come up with some sort of, a, of an explanation. Usually, often it's they're, they're culturally inferior. Mm. And uh, but uh, anyway, but yeah, of course, they're always going to come up with some sort of an explanation. So here's a personal question. Mm. Um, some, some folks might be sitting there saying, you've devoted a, quite a bit of time studying genocides. You've seen kind of the the rawness of human evil um, reading all these things can't be very, very, uh, very, very, you know, positive in, in regards to that. How do you still have a positive view of God as, uh, as, as a good God when you see so much horrendous evil throughout the history of humanity? Well, boy, that's a huge question and I'm glad to get into it with you, but that's a huge question. The question, one of the questions is, is why does God, not stop it. Mm-hmm. Well, what if God want? What if the Lord wants to show us how evil human beings can be? What if He wants to communicate that to us? Well, I'll tell you, nothing does it better than genocide. Uh, and I mentioned. Uh, let me just read just a little bit, if I can pull this up here, um, from George Crin and Leon Rapoport again. This is how they, they, they conclude their book on the Holocaust. What remains is a central deadening sense of despair over the human species. Where can one find an affirmative meaning in life if human beings can do such things? It says, along with this, uh, along with this despair, there may also come a desperate new feeling of vulnerability attached to the fact that one is human. If one keeps at the Holocaust long enough, then sooner or later the ultimate truth begins to reveal itself. One knows finally that one might either do it or be done to. I mentioned that earlier. Um, he says, 
if it could happen on such a massive scale elsewhere, then it can happen anywhere. It's all within the range of human possibility. What if the Lord wanted us to know that information? What if he, nothing, see the scripture says in Romans chapter three, no one does good, no, not one. Uh, they all alike have turned aside and it says, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Nothing reinforces that more than genocide. And listen to the very first sentence. They said, what remains is a general sense, deadening sense of despair over the human species. God wants us to despair over the human species. He wants us to realize that humans aren't good. So I came up and I mentioned 12 of them in my book. In my book on evil, I mentioned 12 of them. Um, uh, things that, that this knowledge did for me. Uh, but... But one of them is, is, and people ask, well, how, you know, uh, I hate this world. That's to your question. I hate this world. I really do. I hate it. I don't, I, because I know what humans will do to each other mm -hmm. very easily. And I hate this world. And, and I think I kid sometimes I think people must go, well, Clay must be a bummer to be around. He must be like <laughs> Eeyore. Why shouldn't I be happy? Cause it's my birthday. Um, but I'm not unhappy uh, because even though I hate this world and you say, and because the next thing it did is it increased my desire for Jesus return. And if you say, why aren't you just bummed out all the time? And the answer to that is I know how it ends. Hmm. See, if there was no God, you know, wow, we're in trouble folks, because then how do we get out of this mess that we're in? But I know how it ends and that's hugely helpful to me. And so, Anyway, uh, that's that's why I'm not depressed because Jesus is coming back and he wanted us. He wants us to know this information and uh, and, and and we are learning this. We learn these terrible truths like it or not through genocide. And as I mentioned to you, and I'll just quote one uh, uh Every, not only gen, every genocide researcher, but every genocide victim agrees that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. As Ellie Wiesel, who suffered eight years in, or who, not eight years, that's Solzhenitsyn again. I keep get, wanting to confuse him with Solzhenitsyn. Uh, even Ellie Wiesel, who was an Auschwitz survivor, he says, deep down man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator, he's all three at once. Hmm. That this is the human condition. And I'm telling you, and I'll say it again, look straight into the camera. Every genocide researcher I've ever read, and I've read many of them, agrees that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. And every genocide victim I've ever read, and I've read many of them, agrees that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. And by the way, the reason Jews don't think that Germans were worse people than they are is because so many Jews helped them help the Germans commit the commit the Holocaust. In fact, if it weren't for Jews helping the Germans commit the Holocaust, the Holocaust couldn't have occurred to anywhere near the scale that it did. They needed the Jews to help. And the Jews realized, my goodness, our own people are, are helping load people into boxcars. So that immediately gets rid of the notion that the Germans are worse people than the Jews. Jews, when you read academic Jews on this subject, they do not think that the Germans were worse people than them. So anyway, right, wow, so anyway, Jesus is coming back and I know how it ends. So that's why I'm not all bummed out. Well, yeah. Um, that knowing the end of the story, I, I, I guess it's, it's always a good thing. Um, so here's a question that's, that's come in, um, related to 
God wanting us to see or know how bad we are is uh, the, the question is why would he need to communicate how evil his own creation is? Isn't he the one who created them that way? Uh, I'll start with the second part first. No, he didn't create them that way. Absolutely not. God did not. In fact, funny, I was asked a question about this on Facebook yesterday. God did not create, first of all, uh, you came from your parents who came from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. Your parent, your, the Lord did not specially create you. Uh, you're, you came from Adam and Eve. You came from your mommy and daddy that came from their mommy and daddy all the way back to Adam and Eve. <clears throat> uh, that's, that's the first thing. Uh, and so, and, but God didn't make Adam and Eve evil. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter three, he didn't curse or do anything to Adam and Eve spiritually or physically. Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord, separated themselves from the Lord, and then they had children in this lost condition. The Lord doesn't, there's nothing in scripture that says the Lord took their nature and somehow twisted it. We've twisted our own natures by being separated from God and not having right relationship with God. And so the question is, you know, people say, well, why didn't God just wipe them out and do what? What if he wants humankind to learn that the answer to the, the one of the big lessons, in fact, it's theology 100. Mm -hmm. In fact, it might even be dumbbell theology, theology 60. And that is, uh, you know what? Um, uh, people aren't good. The Bible teaches this all the way through scripture. People are not good. And he wants us to know this. Um, and one more thing, when Jesus said, uh, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. And I came not to call the, the well, but the sick. Jesus didn't mean that there were righteous, healthy people that he didn't come to call. What Jesus meant was, unless you realize, unless one comes to realize that they are guilty, wicked sinners, they're not in the place to be called by Jesus. And so this is eternally valuable knowledge that we realize that people are not good. Not only are they not, they're not just a little bit not good, they commit genocide very easily. Okay, so I have a question here and then somebody asked something, uh, a question I wanna tie that in. Uh, his question was, what is your explanation for the fall of man? I wanna tie that in with, <clears throat> you said that uh, it's not like God twisted our nature. It seems to me that you're saying that living life without God, uh, there's a natural byproduct of that sort of a life. That's right. And that's what, brings about kind of the mess that we see. That's right. That is exactly what I'm saying. Separating yourself from God. Now you're on your own. And now you can. And the trouble with humans beings on their own is they tend to make themselves their own gods. <laughs> and they tend to, you know, every every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Uh, they tend to make themselves their own de deities. Uh, and, and I think we're just seeing this again and again and again and again. And so uh, you know, then this is again, important, eternally valuable knowledge. Adam and Eve sinned. God gave them the choice to obey or not to obey. They chose to disobey God. And then that caused a separation. They're no longer in right relationship with God. And the Lord basically said, okay, go see how life, see how life is without my constant and intimate protection. Go for it. And so mm -hmm. God curses the ground, which enabled all which enabled natural evils, all kinds of evil. He cursed the ground, and then He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, Eden 
removing them from, from the rejuvenating power of the tree of life and everybody's dying and we've been attending funerals ever since. And so anyway, uh, uh, so God did not, again, he read Genesis three carefully. He didn't do anything. He didn't curse Adam and he didn't curse Eve. He did say Eve childbearing and everything associated with that's going to be harder on you, but he didn't, he didn't do anything to distort their natures or corrupt their natures. They did that on their own. Yeah, and it's, so it's, it shouldn't surprise us that uh, maybe the first thing that comes out uh, of the the exile from Eden is murder. Yes, right. First thing, uh, for, right off the bat. And you, you don't know, have a lot of people there to murder. And they get rid of a quite... Yeah, <laughs> son one kills son two. Yeah. I mean, it's just, this is, you know, I, I again, I encourage everybody, read Romans 3 where it says there is no one who does good. No, not one. They all alike have gone astray. And, and it goes on. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their mouths are full of cursing and on and on. And isn't that what you find? Just watch TV. I mean, and you find that today. So anyway, I uh, one of the things people go, well, why do people do good things? And I'm not going to get off into this, but they do good things because they want to live on uh, symbolically, as I mentioned in my book, Immortal, they want to live on symbolically. And so they're like, I'll, I'll do some, a lot of people are like, I'll do some really good things so that somehow I'll live on symbolically. Or other people are going to, you know, like Kim Kardashian, I'll just do something to make myself famous. So I'll somehow live on symbolically. And a lot of people do really evil things to live on symbolically. Uh, the school shooters, almost every one of them, in fact, everyone that I know of says, uh, tomorrow, everybody's going to know who I am. In other mm -hmm. words, they feel worthless. They don't feel like they're known. Um, the Las Vegas shooter that that uh, shot 851 people, his brother was asked, why do you think he did it? He says, well, he always wanted to be the best at everything. So you would think he would want to have the highest casualty count. I mean, so this is what... This is what humans do. I mean, without God, they, uh, and so, but like I said, a lot of people will do good things like raise their families because they think they're going to live on through their families and what you're not, but they think you, you are, but you're not. Um, but anyway, the, the only way you're going to live on is through having eternal life in Jesus. That's the only way you're going to live on. Amen to that. Um, so let's, let's talk about some, uh, biblical data, the, the so-called, um, Canaanite genocide, which would be something that is um, commanded by God. Uh, now, I've had uh, I've had Doctor Paul Copan on. We've we've spoken. Uh, probably we'll have him on because he just came out with his third right. uh, third book in that section. And again, very similar kind of research you guys have done. I know there. Paul are and I have spoken at conferences together on that topic. Yes, and and I've I've been a witness to I think one of them. But um, uh, you don't necessarily agree with everything and his analysis. I agree uh, with the large majority, but no, I don't agree with everything. Okay, so so there's room amongst just for our audience. There's room for Christians to disagree on this stuff, sure. right? Uh, and yeah. their explanations. So how would you approach that? Because now we have we understand the heinousness, we understand the evil of uh, genocides. Why is it unfair to call what is taking place in the Bible even a genocide? Uh, it's, it's not a genocide. And the reason it's not a genocide is for several reasons. Uh, first, uh, the Lord, um, the Lord tells us straight out, read Leviticus chapter 18, why these people deserve to die. And he begins Leviticus 18 talking about incest. Uh, then he goes into adultery. 
and then he goes into offering your children to Molech, bullheaded idol, where they would offer their children up and burn them to death in the arms of this bullheaded humanoid, like bodied God named Molech. Yeah. Uh, and then there was uh, homosexual practices. And then there was bestiality. Uh, and then it read Leviticus 18 at the beginning and at the end, he says, all these things are practiced by the people that I'm bringing you into. All of them are. And I've got an article <clears throat> and you can find it online entitled, if you Google these words, we don't hate sin. So we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. And what I do is, is I document from Canaanite primary sources. I mean, primary, in other words, Canaanite sources. I document that the Canaanites were doing everything that the Bible says from their own sources. Uh, I'll just give one gross example. Uh, we know from Canaanite literature that Baal raped his sister while she was in the form of a calf 77, even 88 times. Uh, so they, in their literature about who their God was, this is the Canaanite literature. We have rape, incest, and bestiality and Baal's doing this to his sister and the 77 everybody gets it 88 times means a lot he's doing it a lot he's raping her all the time uh, and this is their god uh and i go through like i say in a rather lengthy article that it's in philosophia christi came out in 2009 in philosophia christi like i'll say the title one more time we don't hate sin so we don't understand what happened to the canaanites Look that up with my name, you'll find it right away. And, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, first of all, these it wasn't genocide, it was capital punishment. Secondly, God did not tell Israel to kill every Canaanite everywhere. He told them to kill the Canaanites that were in a particular geographical area. Hmm. He didn't just say, go find them, go locate them, and then hunt them down and kill them. He didn't, he didn't do that. Um, and, and, uh, uh, in fact, some Canaanites that were repented actually joined Israel. Uh, Rahab the harlot uh, joined Israel. Unfortunately for him, this wasn't because he was a Canaanite, but Bathsheba's husband was a Hittite, which is one of the Canaanite tribes. Mm -hmm. And obviously he was a leader. He was a, one of David's uh, best men in his army. Uh, so when, and I go through, more of this but when you put it all together the bottom line is is that uh, uh god said if you commit these sins i'm going to kill you now also one more thing and paul paul was really the one that brought this to my attention first and that is to really make drive home the point this uh, is paul copan not paul the paul apostle yeah that's right paul <laughs> copan thank you for that uh paul copan points out that the lord says i'm going to send word and hornets ahead of you to drive them out. And remember, if you look at the passage, when the spies entered Jericho and Rahab hid them, she said, the whole land is trembling because of you. We've heard what's happened. We heard what you did to Egypt. <clears throat> they could have fled. They could have left. They decided not to leave. And the Lord says, you know, basically those people who decide not to leave, uh, then kill them as they as you find them in that particular geographical area but see but people don't like the idea that it's capital punishment but it's capital punishment and you know what i'm, I'm going to take it a step further this is a preview of the coming judgment 
Those who do these things that do not repent are going to suffer eternal destruction. And so uh, as opposed to people going, oh, guy, I'm, you know, I'm going to make all these apologies, guy, and try to get the Lord out of. No, I'm not interested in that at all. Jesus, the Lord says that those who do these things deserve to die. And I've got news for if you're a non-Christian watching this today, I've got news for you. You need to repent because the judgment's mm -hmm. coming. And if you think what happened to the Canaanites is bad, wait until the coming judgment. So uh, I, I don't, there's not an ounce of feeling the need to apologize or go, oh, well, I'm, yeah, it's really, it's a tough one. How do I get out of this? No, repent or die. And it's, it's really that simple. Yeah, you know, I guess the starting point is uh, for people who are trying to kind of intellectually wrap their mind around this, your starting point matters. Yes. So if you start with animosity, if you start with that complete skepticism and arrogance against God, then obviously you're going to view the situation differently. If you start with a proper um, good orthodox theological position that God is good, he's just, he's not going to make any mistakes, nothing he does is random, uh, then your conclusion is going to be different. Um, and so this video that actually this guy was, uh, that we were looking at last night with my viewers, this guy is doing this kill count, and he says 24 million people got killed. However, he got his number. I'll just give him uh, that. Uh, one of the things I said is, well, he's going to add on to that. Uh, in uh. the final judgment, that's going to be a lot more people. And I, I don't say that necessarily with joy, but just saying, I guess it's not a moral wrong just to say someone killed a lot of people. Because the reason you give as to why that someone killed those a lot of people is going to tell you whether it was a just or unjust decision. That's right. Um, so the details matter here quite a bit. Well, the details matter entirely. And when it comes to the flood, uh, the verse, the key verse when it comes to the flood is the Lord saw that every thought of a man's heart was only evil all the time. Mm. Every thought, only evil all the time. And one of the things I ask my students, I say, so if their every thought was only evil all the time, why wasn't their every deed only evil all the time? And the answer to that's really very simple. It's you couldn't have your every deed be evil all the time. Why? Because you couldn't ravish your neighbor's wife and not have not wake up the next morning with a giant boulder crushing your skull. Uh, and, and people realize that. And so I asked, I asked my classes a question, why did gangbangers stop at red lights? First time I asked it, it was interesting because people are like, I don't know, why do gangbangers stop at red lights? And finally, one woman raised her hand and she says, uh, because they don't want to get a ticket? I go, sure, I'm sure that's a reason that gangbangers stop at red lights. But isn't there a more compelling reason that gangbangers stop at red lights? Isn't the more compelling reason is that they don't want to be hit by an 18-wheeler and turned into red asphalt? That's the really compelling reason as to why they stop at red lights. It's not because they go, you know, I don't respect any laws at all, but red light laws, I respect those. That's not, has nothing to do with it. It's self-interest. Uh, same with adultery. If a man and a woman are start fantasizing that they're married to other people, they start fantasizing about each other and they start flirting with each other. I, I always ask the question, well, why don't they do it? Why don't they actually do the deed if they're, you know, flirting with each other and fantasy? Why don't they do it? Well, it's self-interest, right? 
I don't want her, her to get pregnant or she's thinking, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want to bring home a new disease and have my spouse go, well, that's new, honey. Where'd you get that? I don't want to lose my family or ruin my reputation. But notice it's all about self-interest. Also, in John says in 1 John, um, he who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, if you hate somebody, why don't you murder them? Well, it's not out of moral goodness, right? Because we've already decided that you'd, you've already determined that you hate them. Well, why don't you murder them? Well, it's self-interest, right? Uh, I've seen what those guys look like in the prison population, and I don't want to spend the rest of my life in there with them. <coughs> or, uh, you know, what if I get killed in the attempt to kill these people? In other words, an awful lot of moral goodness, goodness is actually just self-interest. And people will ask, well, what about granny? I mean, sure. I mean, sure. She's not a Christian, but she's a good person. She's she's volunteers in the senior center and she bakes Toll House cookies for the little kids in the neighborhood. That makes she's a good person, right? No, that does not make you a good person. You realize that somewhere in the deep south, there's a KKK mom, grandma baking Toll House cookies for the little white kids in her neighborhood. And she's volunteering in the in the is KKK equivalents of the senior center and, and taking care of these people. That doesn't make you a good person. And, and see people, they, and genocide, and I'm glad, Arthur, that you are, this is our topic, because genocide brings us more clear than any other single thing. Mm. And that's why I've spent so many years on genocide. Uh, people, by the way, they go, well, Gandhi was a good person. He wasn't a Christian. No, he wasn't. Gandhi went to bed naked with his nieces every night. That was only interrupted with him going to bed with married women and other women that, you know, even a woman, one of his relatives' wives, he went to bed with her naked. Um, it, some people may be going, I never heard that. Yeah. Google it. But Google's very powerful. You should all try it sometime. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so people aren't good. Genocide makes that point better than any other single thing. And so you say, well, why does God allow it? allow it to teach us how bad humans are. Mm. So that, I guess that the, the, the concept that comes to the surface is that uh, a lot of us look at genocide historically and say, well, man, I would never do something like that. Uh, right. Like if I was, if I was uh, in, uh, you know, X time in X population, I would be the person fighting against that. Like that, that's generally our initial reaction when we think about this stuff. What the research is saying is actually, no, you wouldn't. No. You would either be very silent and just shut your mouth so you wouldn't get in trouble. Which, or you by would the way, join. is what allows genocide to continue. Keep going. So the silence of people is what allows genocide to continue. Um, and, and or you would just be uh, a part of, uh, you know, those, those committing those acts. Well, again, look at uh, the the suctioning, scraping, scalding, or chemically dissolving of over 60 million babies here in the United States since 1973. I mean, who who lets that happen? It's your next door neighbors, right? It's your friends, right? It's your coworkers, right? In fact, it might even be you. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I this is no. The lesson is people aren't good for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and they need to repent. And unless you do repent, you're going to go to hell forever. And by the way, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn brought up exactly what you were talking about. He spent eight, he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, and he himself spent eight years in a Soviet Gulag. 
And he asked this question. He says, where did this wolf tribe come from among our people? Is it our own flesh, our own blood? He says, it is our own. And just so that no one too quickly goes flaunting the white mantle of the just, let everyone ask himself, if my life had turned out differently, might I too have become such an executioner? He says, it's a terrible question if one answers it honestly. Mm. Uh, and I think and I think what you were bringing up there is, there's only two possible answers to Solzhenitsyn's question. One is, uh, I could have committed genocide if my life had turned out differently. Uh, and that's the correct answer. The other answer is, no, there's something innately in me that I could never have done that. On what logical, scientific, other basis can you say that you were born innately better than other people who've committed genocide? And also, I'd like to remind those people that say that, that thinking that you were born innately better than others is almost always the father of genocide. Huh. And so... This is not, this is, anyway, there's no, there's no way out here, folks. People aren't good and we need to fall down on our knees and ask the Lord's forgiveness to be saved. Amen to that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, uh, uh, again, these are stories I heard because Armenia was taken over and dominated for some 70 years by uh, the communist uh, party of Russia and uh, the Soviets. And, um, and then you see in like the thirties, these there, there's there's these nationalist Armenian nationalists that are at odds with Armenian communists, and and so and and you're seeing the communists really mistreating some sometimes heroes um, of previous wars and stuff like that just because of ideology. Had not they're the same ethnicity, same language, all of it, but, but that whole uh, uh, kind of uh, especially with communism. Just people getting sent to Siberia for for ridiculously stupid reasons, you know. They they made fun of Stalin, so they're they're forty years in in Siberia, uh, in the cold. Um, it's and they're all neighbors, right? Uh, one of the most horrendous things that I heard growing up. I I was born in nineteen eighty five, ladies and gentlemen. For those who don't know, now. Um, th- my my birth certificate says uh, the USSR because uh, I was born in the USSR. It was dominated by uh, the USSR. And I heard all these stories, just um, you couldn't trust anyone. You couldn't trust your neighbor because your neighbor was spying on you uh, for, for the government. And uh, if you said something wrong, just, just living in this utter fear. Again, these weren't like some secret police somewhere else. Right. This was your downstairs neighbor that you saw on a daily basis. You know, it's Deng in China. Deng Xiaoping was a former president of China. He's the one that really brought more of the economic reforms to China. In fact, I just heard him on the news literally yesterday or the day before. Or not him, but I heard about him. Uh, but there's a joke. There was a joke going around in China, where, and the joke was this. Uh, three people are sitting in a prison cell, and one of them says, one of them says to the other, uh, why are you here? And he said, I criticized Deng Xiaoping. And that guy turns to the other one that asked him the question and says, why are you here? He says, because I supported Deng Xiaoping. And then they turn to the guy in the middle and they said, why are you here? And he says, I am Deng Xiaoping. But I mean, if you look at it, anybody that if you get this utopian idea and unfortunately, uh, and and I want to be careful, I don't want to go too far, but unfortunately there's an awful lot of people on, you know, on the progressive far that they think we can have, we can achieve utopia. You cannot achieve utopia. That is not going to happen. Uh, but 
but what happens is is once you decide those who decide you can achieve utopia anybody that gets in the way of utopia needs to go they either need to be re-educated right mm -hmm. so we send them to re-education camps or we kill them because who doesn't want utopia we need to bring this on so so we have to either re-educate them which means just we imprison them for a long period of time uh until they die or we um you know kill them that's right um here's a question that came in it says uh because we spoke about the kind of uh, evil in in human beings and how everyone's doing everything out of self-preservation so our friend here wants to know he says are genuine believers just as evil as non-believers so no. the reborn individual, what's the difference? That's a great question. It's one, obviously, I get that. You know, what What about, in fact, uh, I, I've written on this quite a bit. Um, I've got a blog entitled The, the Real Truth About the Crusades. Um, now, can Christians commit all kinds of heinous evil? Oh, yeah. Can true Christians commit all kinds of heinous evil? Oh, certainly they can, and often they do. Absolutely. But a Christian is someone who becomes obedient from the heart. That doesn't mean that they that they're all of a sudden perfectly good. They're not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not perfect. I commit lots. Have committed, have, and will commit many more sins before I die. But I do think, however, as it, as John says, uh, that you know, he who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I think there are some limits to the evil that Christians can commit. Uh, I don't think that Christians can commit murder one. I mean, premeditated, I'm going to kill this guy. Uh, that brings up, of course, the Crusades. Uh, and part of the answer to that is uh, the overwhelming. And if you look at my blog, The Truth About the Crusades uh, on ClayJones.net, you'll find they were, most of the crusaders were not Christians. They bore the cross of Christ. They liked to wear it, but they weren't Christians. In fact, uh, there was a crusade called the year that Martin Luther pounded the, the, uh, the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And later, Martin Luther wrote a track entitled War Against the Turk. And Luther says, there probably weren't five Christians in the entire crusader army yet they all want to bear the cross of christ so this isn't me looking back five centuries and saying you know well they weren't five or seven eight nine it started in 1095 looking back you know millennia you've got christians at the time going these people aren't christians and i go through other ways of documenting most of these people are not christians they just weren't there's never been a majority of christians of true real Christians at any time in any country, anywhere in the world, in my opinion, it's never happened. Jesus said the gate is wide uh, and the path is easy that leads to life. But he says the gate is narrow and the road is hard that lead. I got that backwards. Yeah, it's good. But anyway, flip that around. The gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to damnation or to hell. The gate is narrow uh, and the road is hard that leads to life. Um, and, and, and indeed that's the case. And, and Jesus said, of course, many will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord. And what's he going to say? I never knew you. So, uh, most of the people, and that goes for today, it goes for today here in the United States. Most of the people who self identifies Christians just simply are not. 
uh, about 71% of Americans self-identify as Christians. But if you keep going down the line, questioning their doctrine, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe Jesus really was raised from the dead? And that's a fact of history. Uh, and it, it gets down to about 8%. Mm. Uh, and so even, be, oh, there's all, you know, America's a Christian nation. Nah, not really. Uh, there's a lot of professing Christians, but a majority maybe even professing Christians, but but most Christians, but most of the people who call themselves Christians aren't. Hmm. That's a that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a good point in the sense of like how we do our politics. It's a good point in regards to like what our immediate commitments are, um, especially uh, I guess in the last maybe eight years or so in the United States, we've seen kind of a, a more separated ideology where it's like as, as Christians we want to be involved in politics because obviously it's it's necessary for existence sure. but but like how what is our immediate commitment to and that's the lordship of Jesus that's his word anyone and anything that goes against the word of God uh, then we we have to uh, whether they're on our side or not you know quote unquote on our side we have to uh, stand against and, and let them know that uh, it, it can't function in that way. We're not going to accept that. Um, there's some questions coming in, so I want to throw them uh, your way. Uh, uh, one of our viewers says, but David killed Uriah. Does, do you believe those in the Old Testament had a change of heart as well? Those in the Old Testament, I don't know what they're meaning exactly there. So like like folks of folks like David would be I, I suppose um, would be so. Well, David was hugely repentant. Read, read Psalm fifty one. I mean, uh, David was t completely and utterly repentant, and God, by the way, punished him severely for it. Even though he was repentant, uh, all I can say is he said, "The sword will never leave your house," and indeed, it never did until he died, and he lived a very hard life after that. Uh, but he was repentant. And so I, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure where to take it from there. Cause I'm just, I mean, in the old Testament, could people repent of their sins? Yes. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so uh, John Clash says, uh, what is the hardest question to answer on the God allowing evil topic? I hear so many babies with cancer, starving kids, natural yeah. disasters, etc." You know, uh, I know I keep doing this. I, I talk about this in my books in my book why does god allow evil at length why god lets children die but i'm going to save you the money if you want to get it for, for get most of my argument for no charge on um i've got an article entitled why did god let that child die in the christian research journal and if you google why did god let that child die you'll find my argument there you know and it's always interesting to me because people will go why did God let, you know, five-year-old Kaylee die of cancer? Or why did God let, you know, seven-year-old Braden be hit by a car while he was mo while he was on his, you know, skateboard? And when they do, see, they're bringing up just one example. Just answer this one example. Why did God let Kaylee die of cancer when she was five? But what I always do is, is, is I reply this way. I say, well, it's not just Kaylee, right? Uh, you don't think any child should die. God should let any child die of cancer, right? 100% of the time. I mean, 100%. No, of course, God shouldn't let any child die of cancer. I go, well, it's not just cancer, right? You don't think God should let children die of other hideous diseases, do you? 100% of the time. No, no, of course, God shouldn't let God, 
children die of other hideous diseases. And I go, well, you don't think that God should allow them to be murdered or raped, right? No, of course God shouldn't allow them to be murdered or raped. Or what about su suffering terrible burns or or die, drowning in a swimming pool? No, of course God shouldn't let children die that way. And so finally, as I keep going on this, I say, so to what age do you think children should be indestructible? Most people at that point laugh. Most people, <laughs> because they realize indestructible children is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, when anybody, this is what people are bringing up here. And this is, you know, I talk about this a lot in my book, Why Does God Allow Evil? What people are bringing up here is God should have made the universe differently than he did. And don't get, I encourage you if you're a Christian, don't get frustrated. Don't get, just say, well, let's talk about how should he have made the universe differently. Now, here's how I always put it, though. Tell me how God makes the universe in such a way that there's either no suffering, no evil, or at least he diminishes it very greatly. But you cannot take away free will. Uh, you take away free will. I can make well, no suffering. Got it. No free will, no suffering, all gone. Got it fixed. How does God do that? Leave free will. You can't take that away. Leave it in and tell me how he does that. And you know, the response of the overwhelming majority of people is they get mad. I don't know. I'm not God. In other words, they don't have an answer. They don't have a solution. Uh, how would you keep children indestructible until, let's say, until 12? I asked one, I said, how, what, to what age should they be indestructible? This, this one woman goes, 12. I said, but that falls apart right away. All of a sudden at 13, it's going to be okay for 13-year-olds to be die of cancer, get raped, murdered, uh, die in car. It, it falls apart immediately. But what would the mechanism be that would do that? Would God have to commit, cause there to be millions of miracles every single day to keep children from being injured? That would make God's existence absolutely unmistakable. And what if God doesn't want to make his existence absolutely unmistakable? Uh, I, in fact, I argue that he doesn't. God does not want to make his existence so obvious because if he did, we'd all be going, well, of course there's a God. You and me, we're like this. He could have made the universe such that there was a, we could kind of look through the ceiling, look up at the ceiling and see a giant flaming sword. And if anybody ever disobeyed God, they'd immediately be cut in half by that giant flaming sword. How many people would be Christians in that world? All of them. How many people would be worshipers in that world? I don't think you'd get worshipers in that world. And so God gives enough evidence of his, of his existence so that those who want to believe will have their beliefs justified, but not so much evidence of his existence that those who don't want to believe will be forced to feign loyalty. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so I suppose I, I remember, um, actually, I remember uh, this, this was a class I took with uh, Dr. Doug Guyvet, uh, <laughs> where God's uh, intention is not necessarily to get people to uh, assent to this proposition that God exists. Like that, right. that is not what God wants. What God wants is commitment. What God wants is loyalty and worship. Um, is a trust of him, not just, hey, this this is the fact. Um, That's right. It, that, that doesn't matter, really. As C.S. Um, Lewis put it, if, if belief in God, the, the evidence for God cannot, couldn't be just like a multiplication table. For if it were, then we'd have no nothing to do but accept it. So he wants to create a world where we can freely choose to come to Jesus or freely choose to reject him. Uh, and then we'll see how our hearts, where our hearts lead us. We got two more questions and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, number one, uh, he says, uh, 
I understand the evils that men commit, but what about the so-called acts of God that cause great harm to both believers and unbelievers? You mean acts of God, lightning, you know, storms, tsunamis? Is that, is that I guess that's, that's what that's, the person... Yeah, that's what I'm assuming, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, you know, like I say, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the garden of good and evil, in the garden, they ate from the tree in the garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they plunged us, their descendants, into a lifelong education of good and evil. Uh, and so we are learning, we are having to learn to respond to these things. And, uh, uh, and, and natural laws, by the way, have to work, must work in regular ways if our actions are going to mean anything. Uh, you know, I, I mean, people build their houses on the beach and a hurricane wipes them out. Uh, and, and well, people have asked me, why did God allow Hurricane Katrina to wipe out New Orleans? And I'll say, well, let's think about it for a minute. We built a city below sea level and we built it with walls that we knew for a fact could not withstand a hurricane beyond category three when hurricane categories four and five were already a regular part of our existence. It wasn't like we thought they went to three. And then when Katrina came along, we went, whoa, they go to five. Who knew? Uh, Solomon says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Mm. And what we are in is a world that is not, you know, when we Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they plunged us, their descendants, into a lifelong education of knowing the hardship of a world without God's constant care. And he's glad to have that. But the real point is, are you going to live forever in Jesus or not? Because uh, honestly, and I'm going to say something that might shock some people, your physical death's not that important. Uh, now you say, what's well, important to me? Well, I get that. But, but you know, it's your spiritual life or death. It's really the point. And this world was designed in such a way, God allows it to work in such a way that you can choose to get angry with God or you can choose to submit to him, but it's up to you. I suggest you do the latter. Amen to that. <clears throat> Um, Jeremy has a question here. He says, this is less apologetics and more pastoral. Um, how would you respond to someone diagnosed with stage four cancer in regards to this happening and God being fully sovereign? Well, uh, you know, it's funny because I have a friend that was just diagnosed with acute leukemia and, uh, and how I would respond to them, first of all, is to weep with those who weep. Uh, to show compassion and love to those who are suffering. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I've had bone cancer. And uh, in, in 2004, I had bone cancer removed from my body. Thankfully, I'm fine. That's a story for another day. But our job is to love people and to take care of them, to bring them meals. That's one of the things I we love the most when I had bone cancer. Uh, to bring them meals and take care of them. And this is pastoral. And we, you know, when somebody has just suffered a loss, they've lost a child, they've lost a spouse, they've lost, a, you know, I mean, they've had it, they find out they've got a terminal disease, whatever. So they, what they don't need is for you to sit down and start explaining the God's larger plan in the universe. What they need you to do is to weep with those who weep and to love them and to be there for them. There does come a time though, as the months and years go on where they go, why did God do that anyway? Okay. Now, let me see, you know, try to explain to you what God's doing in the universe. And as I said, the biggest thing is your physical death is not that important. It's whether you're going to live with Jesus forever and ever and ever or not. And that's where we need to put our focus. 
Yeah. And thankfully, and, my 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 dear friend that has leukemia, uh, he knows Jesus and he's honoring God through it, even though, you know, I mean, this is a tough time for him. Correct. Yeah. And I suppose when Jesus, uh, and we'll end with this, when Jesus was confronted with a very difficult situation, which was the death of his friend Lazarus, his response was, I am the resurrection. And so I think it is always important for us to have our focus on Christ because right. uh, we're not guaranteed, uh, you know, health, wealth, and all that other stuff. As a matter of fact, if we're believers, we might be guaranteed persecution and suffering uh, quite a bit uh, in, its, in its various and different right. formats. And added on to that, all the natural stuff that comes with aging and uh, just uh, a world that is a fallen world. Um, ultimately, the question we need to ask is, where can we put our real hope in? And uh, the whole point of apologetics uh, is not so that we can have extremely large heads and uh, can argue people into the ground and, and destroy them. It is so that we use it as a tool to lead people uh, to Jesus, because that's where true salvation, hope, resurrection, newness of life, no tears, no death, no pain, all that good stuff that we're longing and hoping for is in Christ. That's right. And, well, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16 ends with, shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's either true or it's not true. Of course, we Christians, especially apologists, are saying it is true, and we have good reason to believe it. Jesus really was raised from the dead, and that's a fact of history. But if that's true, then that will dwarf any sufferings that we endure here to insignificance. And so Paul says the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's what's really true. And we need to real again, the most famous verse in the Bible ends with, shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's where we need to set our hope. And that's that's the glory that awaits us. And to, Amen to that. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to uh, take your attention to the other book he's written that we didn't talk uh, so much about. Let's uh, call the immortal. Let's not put our hope in these false immortality right. projects and put our that's true right. faith and hope in Christ, the Redeemer. I want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Dr. Jones, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your day and uh, being here with us. Any final thoughts before we go? Well, you mentioned where we set our hope. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13, being self-controlled and sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's not three commands. It's, it's you know, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope on heaven because that's what, you know, I mean, the fact Jesus came and answered our greatest need and our greatest need was is that we were all doomed to destruction, but he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead so that we could live forever. So I would leave everyone with that. Amen to that. I think that's a great note to leave on. Everybody, uh, we will have a live Q&A tomorrow, midday West Coast time. Uh, that's actually one o'clock, not midday, not, not 12, but it will be at one o'clock. Mm -hmm. I will see you guys tomorrow. God bless you. And I hope that you have a great rest of the day. Take care.